Hey, strangers. We're taking a break this week from our regular episodes, but we'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Strange and Unexplained. While we're away, here's an episode from another fascinating true crime podcast from the Obsessed Network. It's called Crimes of the Centuries. Crimes of the Centuries is a podcast all about true crimes throughout history. Murders, disappearances, kidnappings, and more. The crimes were huge when they happened, but were somehow lost to history. Each week, amazing host Amber Hunt takes a deep dive into one of these cases, putting it into historical context and examining its lasting impact on society. For this episode, Amber takes a look at the mysterious death of Eduardo Torreya, longtime friend and business associate of heiress Doris Duke. When the heiress hit and killed Torreya with her car, it was quickly dismissed as an accident, but his family always believed it was murder. Enjoy the episode, and we'll see you next week. Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Residents of a posh neighborhood in Newport, Rhode Island, heard a terrible crash on October 7th, 1966. When they went outside to investigate, they saw a woman whose face they knew quite well. In fact, most people in America would have recognized her. She was tall and blonde and wandering in a daze near a smashed car, crying out for Ed. The woman's name was Doris Duke. When she'd been born, headlines declared her the richest little girl in the world. But on this day, Doris was in her early 50s, far from a little girl anymore, and she'd clearly crashed a station wagon into a tree across the street from her insanely opulent Tudor-style mansion on Bellevue Avenue. Lewis and Judith Thorne, a father-daughter duo who happened to be driving by, were the first to stop at the scene. Judith followed the tall, blonde woman into the Tudor home, trying to figure out if she needed help. Lewis stayed outside and realized it wasn't the woman who needed help. It was the man beneath her car. Lewis couldn't see much, but he could tell the man wasn't moving. Within minutes, police would descend on the scene and do everything they could to ensure that this incident became a crime of the century that barely anyone would ever even hear about. Doris Duke is an unnervingly enigmatic character in American history. For decades, she was one of the highest-profile people in the country, and yet we don't know all that much about her inner workings. When she died in 1993, she left behind a ton of money, but very few personal writings. Not even many letters survived. She'd been born to Nanoline and John Buchanan Duke, though most people referred to her father as Buck. 
This is lawyer Suzelle Smith, who worked with Doris and eventually helped handle her estate, talking about Doris's dad. James B. Duke was a robber baron. He monopolized, or his companies monopolized, tobacco and electric power in the southern part of the United States. And he amassed, for the time, a huge fortune. But before we dive too deeply into Buck, let's back up a little bit further. It goes like this. Doris's grandfather, her father's father, was Washington Duke, a man born in 1820 who fought for the Confederates in the U.S. Civil War. Washington had started out as a farmer. In 1842, he married a 17-year-old woman named Mary Caroline Clinton, whose father gave the couple 72 acres of land in North Carolina's Durham County. Mary gave birth to two sons within five years. When her youngest was just a year old, Mary died. She was only 22. Washington, the widower, remarried about five years later, this time to a woman named Artelia. In a three-year span, Artelia gave birth to three more children, one of whom was James Buchanan, a.k.a. Buck. Artelia didn't live long either, however, dying in 1856 after just four years of marriage. She died of typhoid fever, which she'd caught from her three-year-old son, Sidney, who himself died of the disease 10 days after his mom did. It was after he'd been widowed a second time that Washington Duke began the endeavors that would make not only him, but future Dukes for generations to come filthy rich. In 1881, Washington founded a tobacco company named after himself and his prodigy, W. Duke, Sons & Co., At first, Washington sold his tobacco from a wagon, traveling along the eastern portion of North Carolina to find customers. And back then, because the product was mostly sold loose, with ready-made cigarettes reserved as luxury items for the ultra-wealthy, it wasn't all that convenient. On top of that, it was actually well known in the early 20th century that smoking tobacco was stupid health-wise, So the combination of it being a pain to roll and being unhealthy for you to boot meant that tobacco popularity was waning. Until, that is, Washington and others in the industry turned to a machine invented in 1880 by a man named John Albert Bonsack. In 1881, Bonsack invented the automatic cigarette-making machine. It helped tobacco use skyrocket in the 20th century. Using an incredible system of gears, rollers, and levers, he made 100,000 cigarettes a day. This is The Engineer Guy on YouTube. The economic impact of his work might put him up there with Thomas Edison, Alexander Graham Bell, and the Flying Wright Brothers. Bonsack's speedy automatic cigarette-making machine manufacturers helped Americans to smoke over a billion cigarettes by 1889, increasing 20 years later to over 10 billion. Today, Americans smoke nearly a trillion cigarettes a year. Yay, technology? Believe it or not, plenty of tobacco makers initially scoffed at this invention because the cigarettes came out so uniform-looking that some thought they'd never appeal to customers who liked the individuality of a hand-rolled cigarette. But W. Duke, Sons & Co. saw Bonsack's machine as a game-changer. By this point, Buck Duke was president of the tobacco company his father founded, and his foresight paid off. This is Doris Duke biographer Sally Bingham. 
her father, James Buchanan Duke, who was known as Buck Duke, created this enormous fortune because he he perfected the bonsai machine. He didn't invent it, but he perfected it, which made it possible for him to manufacture thousands of cigarettes. The Bonsac machine could produce about 200 cigarettes a minute. Not only that, but it cut the cost of rolling by 50%. Buck Duke struck a deal with Bonsac's company, agreeing to produce all of his cigarettes with two rented Bonsac machines. In return, Bonsac got royalty off sales. The two businessmen kept this arrangement private, and Duke's competitors could never figure out how he was able to keep his prices so much lower than they could. Because the tobacco industry on the whole had been slowing, Buck joined forces with some other small-scale companies to merge into the American Tobacco Company. That was in 1890. The idea was to create one huge holding company, which they did, It was one of the very first on the New York Stock Exchange. Buck Duke did something else smart, too. He advertised. And to launch a major publicity campaign, which started the spread of nicotine, not only in this country, but worldwide. Because even then, in the early 20th century, in the late 19th century, there were studies being done that proved the toxic effects of nicotine. Buck also helped found a power company. Headquartered in Charlotte, North Carolina, Duke Energy began in 1900 as the Catawba Power Company. Buck wasn't part of it at first, but he started investing in it and other utilities in the early 20th century. Eventually, those fell under the umbrella of Duke Power, which eventually morphed into Duke Energy in 1997. If you're wondering whether Duke Energy is still around, my checkbook assures you it is. Buck's legacy, of course, is complicated. He made hundreds of millions of dollars by more or less killing people. And still, you can find plenty of gushing biographies about him, like this one released by the Duke Endowment. James B. Duke was warm-hearted and charming, a Southern gentleman to the core. Buck was first married in 1904, but that marriage ended in divorce two years later with no children. In 1907, he married Nanoline, who'd been widowed. With Nanoline, Buck had his only child, daughter Doris, born in 1912. As soon as Doris was born, she was rich. But if you've ever found yourself kind of comforted by the fact that some rich people are unbelievably miserable, then you'll be happy to know that Doris sounds like one absolutely miserable person for most of her life. Whether this was true in her earliest years, I don't know. But it certainly seems to have been true from her teenage years on. Buck had adored Doris, absolutely doted on her. And she, in turn, idolized her father. So it made an impact that Buck had been infamously avoidant of reporters. He had been haunted all his life by questions about why he was invested in creating the appetite for nicotine. Everyone knew, even in the early 20th century, when he was starting or had started, that nicotine was destroyed health. So he could never evade the difficult questions for which there really is not much of an answer if you're making a great fortune, as we know, off something that is destructive. In 1925, Buck got sick with pneumonia. He was dying, and he apparently wanted to bequeath some wisdom on his way out. 
and Miss Duke told me this herself, her father called her to his deathbed and virtually his dying words to her were, Doris, no one will ever love you for yourself. They will only love you for your money. He supposedly told his 12-year-old daughter on his deathbed that she should trust no one. That piece of advice apparently led Doris to become paranoid as all get out. She took that to heart and, and that was the way she lived her life. She never trusted anyone. That was perhaps a self-protective instinct, but it also became a very self-destructive instinct. Now, Doris was very smart and wanted to go to college, but Nana Lean, herself a college graduate, refused to let her daughter get beyond an eighth grade education. She thought that schooling was unnecessary for women. This was very hard on Doris. It was a very bright girl really wanted to go to university, wanted to become an educated woman, which she did largely through self-education. But she never had the credentials that usually are what allow women to feel they can write. She may have been a little uneasy about her basic skills as a writer. Nanaline also seemed pretty ticked that most of her husband's estate had been left to Doris, while she, as his wife, had only been left a modest trust fund. Nanaline began to sell some of the family's assets, prompting Doris to sue her own mother at age 14 to stop her from selling her inheritance. That was Doris's first involvement in a lawsuit, but certainly not the last. According to biographers, she filed some 40 lawsuits in her 80 years alive. Through the 1920s and 30s, Doris grew to adulthood in the public eye. Doris Duke was tall, blonde, beautiful, and rich. A tabloid staple. That's from a documentary by Forbes. Tall, by the way, is almost an understatement. Doris was between six feet and six foot two, depending on the source. She was pretty in a sleepy-eyed, aloof kind of way, with a pronounced chin and pursed lip smile. Doris Duke was very eccentric. She was, she was willful. She had her own ways. She um, thumbed her nose at society. Doris got married at age 22 to a man 16 years older named Jimmy Cromwell. But being married to the richest woman in the world has definite drawbacks. While the two went on a two-year around-the-world honeymoon, Doris routinely outshined her husband and thus his political aspirations. She would attempt to campaign for him, but the reporters would all just write about her instead. This drove a wedge between the couple who'd built a house they called Shangri-La near Honolulu, Hawaii, that Doris kept until her death. Today, the home is the Shangri-La Museum for Islamic Art, Design, and Culture. And that's the thing about Doris. She did a lot of good in the world. She paid to restore numerous buildings in Newport, Rhode Island. She donated to environmental causes and to animal rights. Among many, many requests for help, she got something from the chairman of the Rosebud Reservation, still one of the poorest native reservations in this country. And instead of just sending a token amount or throwing the letter in the trash, she actually visited Rosebud. Very rare at that time or any time for a woman of her class to visit a native reservation. She was adopted into the tribe. She was given a name. She was given a regalia to wear, which is on display in her house in Newport, Rough Point. 
She also contributed to foundations fighting child abuse. The year she died, she'd given $2 million for AIDS research at Duke University, named after her father thanks to a $40 million donation. Plus, she gave another million to the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation. Doris Duke, without question, did an amazing amount of good in her life. But she also killed her best friend. Eduardo Torella was a bit younger than Doris Duke. Born in 1924 in Dover, New Jersey, he was cultured and handsome. At 18, he registered for World War II and, in July 1943, enlisted in the Army, serving in the 328th Infantry, Company K. This was when the war was reaching a climax, and Eduardo was awarded the Bronze Star Medal. After serving for two years, he was discharged. Eduardo, sometimes called Edward or Eddie, was an artist at heart. In the 1950s, he designed items for Saks, the department store, and his hat designs were being mentioned in style columns in the Los Angeles Times. A few years later, his interior designs were lauded in the same publication under the headline, Rescued by Remodeling. The writer gushed about Torella's use of, quote, oriental colors, textures, and a landscape with the flavor of the Far East, end quote. By 1964, he had graduated from clothes and interior design to straight-up multimedia artist. Per a syndicated column, he designed and built a $5,000 bed carved of wood for actor James Coburn. It was during this evolution that Torella's path crossed with Doris Duke, who was still stupid rich, but not on the same upswing as Eduardo. She and her first husband, Jimmy Cromwell, were estranged by the time Doris got pregnant at age 27. Apparently, she'd had enough affairs to scandalize society, and the rumor mill attached several supposed paramours as the possible father. In 1940, Doris's baby girl, whom she named Arden, was born premature. The baby didn't live 24 hours. And Doris's doctors reportedly told her that she would never be able to conceive again. She was apparently so devastated by this that she tried to contact her dead daughter using psychics. Now, of course, Doris never had to work, but she did anyway. She had somewhat of a chip on her shoulder because she was an intelligent woman. She was not educated beyond high school. And she always felt as if she wasn't really making a contribution in life. Despite not having a high school degree, she was hired on as a foreign correspondent for the International News Service, for which she would report on war-torn cities across Europe. Doris naturally drew a lot of attention for working overseas in tough conditions when she could have been chilling by one of her many pools. She probably made as many headlines as she helped report. One wire story began, Doris Duke, world's wealthiest woman, had a medal pinned on her by a Soviet general just because she was another American working girl, she said. Later in the story, she insisted that reports she'd called legendary General George S. Patton Jr. Georgie were fake news. I don't know him that well, she said. While she was working, her husband filed for a divorce. The two had legally been living in New Jersey, the laws of which would have worked out quite favorably for Jimmy Cromwell, who wanted a hefty chunk of Doris's estate. 
His lawyers told a reporter he also wanted rights in Doris's estate should she die, and he wanted a ruling forbidding either party from remarrying. To thwart this, Doris rushed to Reno, Nevada, set up residence for about six weeks, then filed for and was granted a divorce there. But the U.S. Supreme Court weighed in on Nevada quickie divorces and ruled that individual states could decide whether to recognize divorces granted in Nevada. While it wasn't Duke's divorce that prompted the ruling, hers was by far the highest profile to be affected by it. All of this was exquisite fodder for the gossip columns. Eventually, the divorce was granted. Soon after, also while she was working, Doris met her second husband, a Lothario named Porfirio Ruberosa. The playboy Ruberoso, who was supposed to be incredibly well endowed, not with money, but with, <laughs> with other features. He was, by all accounts, a legendary ladies' man, having wooed Marilyn Monroe, Ava Gardner, Dorothy Dandridge, Joan Crawford, even Ava Perone. Before marrying Doris in 1947, he'd been married twice before. After their divorce four years later, he got married two more times before dying in a car wreck in 1965. With her love life twice splashed across front pages nationwide, not to mention her fortune dwindled with each divorce, Doris swore off marriage, if not men. She next fell for a jazz pianist named Joseph Castro, who would be her companion for several tumultuous years. This relationship overlapped with the one Doris began with Eduardo Torella. This is journalist Samantha Todd of Forbes. Doris Duke and Eduardo Torella knew each other for a good decade. They're pretty close companions. They confided in each other. And to be clear, that relationship was not like the others Doris had with attractive men. Eduardo was gay. Still, they seemed to forge a strangely codependent relationship. Eduardo was also her artistic curator, and he helped design her homes on her many estates, so she trusted him and really sought his advice when designing her homes. Doris set up a room for Eduardo in every estate she owned, and she relied on him to give her input on art she bought for each property. Eduardo was paid, but it sounds like Doris's M.O. was to arrange things so that he had to stay close to her to get the things he wanted. As in, he wasn't just given a paycheck and cut free. His employment was contingent on proximity. This is how a trailer for a new book about Eduardo's death describes him. Eduardo Torella was her art curator and designer. A war hero and Renaissance man who happened to be gay. He was a close friend of Sharon Tate, Kim Novak, Elizabeth Taylor, and Richard Burton. On the edge of a new career in Hollywood. For a while, this worked out fine. Eduardo would jet set with Doris all around the world, checking out artifacts and antiques to build collections, some of which are still on display today. She set records for the amount of money she spent on some of their finds. Romantically, she was with Castro, the pianist, and Eduardo found a partner in Edmund Cara. The two had a lot in common. They were both artists, both born in New Jersey. Edmund's favorite medium was wood. In 1965, he and Eduardo actually worked together in art design on the film The Sandpiper. The movie starred Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor, 
and was directed by Vincenti Minnelli, as in Liza Minnelli's father. In the movie, a character played by actor Charles Bronson carves a statue for Taylor's character. The real statue was sculpted by Edmund Cara from a 2,200-pound trunk of redwood. Eduardo Torella, meanwhile, designed a beach house used as a set piece in the film. After that, he was hired to advise on a Tony Curtis movie called Don't Make Waves. That also starred Eduardo's friend and later Charles Manson victim, Sharon Tate. This is Wild West. And this is the West that's even wilder. This is the way, way, way out West. Eduardo wanted to do more of that kind of work, but he couldn't when he also had to be at Doris Duke's beck and call. So, in October 1966, Eduardo told friends and family that he had made an important decision. He was going to end his professional relationship with Doris. And this shouldn't have been a huge deal, but because she demanded so much of him, especially in terms of his companionship, it was more akin to breaking up a marriage than quitting a job. By this point, the whole world knew how litigious Doris was. I mean, she couldn't work a day without it making headlines, So, of course, every lawsuit was publicized, too. And it had become known that her relationship with Joseph Castro had not just soured, but turned violent. When Castro tried to leave her once, she sliced his arm with a butcher knife. As a 1988 Orlando Sentinel story reflected, quote, Nothing much came of it, though, because it was his word against hers. And Doris Duke has never been reluctant to put her considerable money where her mouth is. End quote. So Eduardo's friends and family were worried. They told him, maybe don't do this in person. Maybe just tell her on the phone. Send a courier for your stuff. But Eduardo said no. He could handle Doris. They had been friends slash collaborators for about a decade at that point, and he wanted to extend the courtesy of telling her what was up to her face. What we know is that on October 6, 1966, Doris picked up Eduardo from the airport in Newport, Rhode Island, and took him to the 10-acre estate she had there called Rough Point. The house was situated on Bellevue Avenue, which also is known as Newport's Millionaire's Row, according to journalist Peter Lance. Eduardo planned to pack his belongings into a rented station wagon the next day to begin his new life. And it seemed like that first day together went fine. But as the estate staff would soon tell police, Doris and Eduardo got into a terrific argument the next afternoon. Most staffers couldn't make out the words they were saying, but they could definitely catch the sentiment. Doris was pissed. Eduardo, though, apparently wanted to end on good terms. He agreed to a request from Doris to come with her to appraise a piece of art she'd been contemplating buying. The two climbed into the rented station wagon and eased down the long driveway toward the iron gates that kept strangers away from Doris's house. They got in the car, ready to go. Eduardo was in the driver's seat, but he had to get out to go open the gate to get onto Bellevue Avenue. So he put the car in park and he got out and Doris slid over into the driver's seat. The gate on the estate opened manually because this was 1966 and Doris was rich but technology hadn't reached today's level of remote control everything. Eduardo had just reached the gates when suddenly 
She claims that this car suddenly leapt forward. She doesn't know what happened. And at some point, Eduardo was pinned against the gate and the car crashed straight through the gate and into a tree on Bellevue Avenue. The wreck was massive. The front end of the vehicle destroyed. Doris, apparently stunned and with some cuts and bruises from the collision, stumbled out of the car. This is when Judith, Tom, and her father, Louis, arrived. Eduardo, pinned beneath a rear axle, endured massive injuries to his spine, brain, and lungs, killing him instantly. Doris said she had no idea what happened. She said she'd put her foot on the brake and had intended to ease forward to let Eduardo back into the car, but it would appear that she slammed on the accelerator instead. Police and medics descended on the scene. Eduardo's lifeless body was loaded into one ambulance while Doris was placed in another. The acting state medical examiner was a doctor named Philip C. McAllister, who interestingly was immediately hired by Doris to be her personal physician. Dr. McAllister ensured that Doris was secreted into her hospital room and he forbade any in-depth interrogations of her. When reporters asked about the crash, Dr. McAllister said it was a terrible accident and that Doris was too shaken to talk about it. Now, usually after a crash like this, there'd be an inquest. And we've talked about coroner's inquests and other cases covered on the show. And the gist is that witnesses are brought in to testify before a jury about what happened to cause someone's death. The jury then rules on the cause of death, And sometimes they'll rule on whether they believe someone specific is at fault. It was often a precursor to criminal charges being filed by the county prosecutor. But this case was handled differently. Newport Police Chief Joseph A. Radici heard Doris's version of events and accepted them as true. There was no inquest. And with the coroner suddenly on Doris's payroll, there was no pushback either. The death was quickly ruled accidental, and the case was closed. Coincidentally, after this happened, Doris Duke got insanely generous with the city of Newport. Or maybe it wasn't a coincidence at all. In his book, Homicide at Rough Point, and in a Vanity Fair article titled the same, journalist Peter Lance argues that Doris Duke got away with murder when she ran over her longtime friend and trusted employee, Eduardo Torella. Lance declined to talk to me about his theories because he said he's making his own podcast, but a chunk of his argument centers on following the money. Doris's money, that is. Eight days after the crash, Doris donated $25,000 to restore Cliff Walk, which is the public walkway upon which Newport's Millionaire's Row is situated. It basically separates the mansions from the shoreline of the Atlantic Ocean. Prior to this, Doris had actually put up a fence along Cliff Walk to block the section near her home. She was feuding with the city over who had legal rights to that section. A 1958 story in the Newport Daily News read, quote, Heavy wire fencing and thorny bushes have been placed across the walk and no trespassing signs erected. Gordon King, caretaker at the Duke estate, said Miss Duke had ordered the fence, bushes, and signs put up last summer to prevent cliff walkers from going up on the lawn and looking into the house. 
The barrier has been torn down repeatedly, King said, but has been replaced, end quote. And that story was in 1958, so this was no fresh feud. Yet suddenly, not two weeks after she killed Eduardo with her car, Doris dropped the feud and donated the equivalent of more than $200,000 in today's money. And a few months later, following these donations, she had set up the Newport Restoration Fund, which was meant to restore 84 colonial-era buildings in Newport. Now, no evidence of any direct payments have ever surfaced, but Lance noted that Chief Radici retired just seven months after the death. This was a guy who had for years lived on a pretty modest paycheck, and yet he was able to buy two condos in Florida after retirement. Suspicion would circle Doris for the rest of her life. A lot of people believe she bought her way out of this, that she paid blood money to make this go under the rug and just forget about it, to get her out of the limelight and that pretend this never happened. Newport residents also noticed that when Radici retired, he wasn't replaced by the captain of detectives, as people had anticipated. Rather, he was replaced by an inspector who had interviewed Doris after the wreck. Plus, there was another cop who interviewed her who was promoted to sergeant soon afterward. Meanwhile, that captain of detectives guy hadn't been thrilled with the investigation. He was the one passed over. What's especially interesting is that after the accident, most of the contemporary documents surrounding the investigation into Eduardo's death disappeared. A lot of the evidence seems like it was mislabeled or it just mysteriously vanished, even court cases, her statements. So it seems like whether there was a cover-up or the police didn't do their job, there was a lack of accountability at the time, and that's what makes it so much harder to dive into this case and find out what truly happened. For Eduardo Torella's family, his loss was beyond devastating. It's impossible to put a dollar sign on a human loss, but he'd been poised to do big things in his career. The year before he died, he'd made about $40,000, which today would be in the $325,000 range and he seemed to be gaining ground. Had Eduardo not warned everyone that he was about to leave Doris, maybe his family wouldn't have questioned the official's accident ruling. But he did, and so they did. I mean, these are people who had literally warned him against cutting ties with her in person for fear she would react badly. And the next thing they know, they're learning of his death at her hands. They could not fathom that this was anything other than murder. They asked Doris for a $200,000 settlement, which she probably had in her version of a fun money account for impromptu purposes. She refused. The fact that Eduardo was such her close friend, why wouldn't she want to help them out and be there for them at this time? She caused the death of her friend. So they sued. If you're a true crime buff, Chances are you know this already, but just in case, there are two ways to hold someone legally accountable for something. One way is in criminal court. The other is in civil court. The police barricaded the criminal route by declaring the death accidental, so Eduardo's family filed a wrongful death civil suit instead. This is how O.J. Simpson was deemed responsible for the deaths of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. The legalities of the two paths are different. For a criminal conviction, you need so much evidence that it's clear beyond any reasonable doubt that the accused is guilty. But to be civilly liable, the bar is much lower. 
You only need a preponderance of evidence. That wasn't a tough hurdle for Eduardo's family, but Doris was stingy. Instead of paying the family anything close to his real worth, she, through her lawyers, attacked him personally, portraying him as a 'er ne'er-do-well mooch who had no idea how to make or keep money. The takedown was effective enough that Doris was ordered to pay only $75,000 to Eduardo's eight siblings. After lawyer fees, each sibling got less than $6,000. I don't think Eduardo's partner, Edmund Cara, got anything at all. He spent the rest of his life living in Big Sur as a reclusive artist. He rarely even let people see his work. Doris continued amassing antiques and artwork, and it continued to not make her happy. More than once, she talked openly about how the money was more a burden than a gift, to which we all say, then give me some, am I right? Some people believed that Eduardo's death cursed not just Doris, but her fortune, her supposed blood money. Doris's paranoia made her constantly question whether people who showed interest in her were truly interested in her or just her money. She wrote and rewrote her will countless times. Doris Duke also had a favorite game she played, which was to bring people in and out of the will if you were up or down in her good graces. And so she used that to um, pull strings, you know, be the puppeteer with people her whole life. In 1988, she adopted a 35-year-old woman in Hawaii named Chandy Hefner, as in she legally adopted an adult woman who became her heir. Doris apparently told people that Hefner was the reincarnation of Arden, Doris's infant who had died in the 40s. Around the same time, she also hired an Irish butler named Bernard Lafferty, a guy who wore his blonde hair pulled into a ponytail. So Bernard sort of quietly and slowly infiltrated himself into Doris Duke's life closer and closer. He cut out other people. In early 1993, she revised her will to make Lafferty the executor. She also attempted to write Hefner out of her will entirely because the two women had a falling out. Apparently, Hefner had fallen in love with one of Doris's bodyguards, and Doris didn't take kindly to being anything less than the center of Hefner's world. Lafferty was smart enough. He didn't just make himself the heir. He made himself the executor and the trustee of the charitable trust, the charitable estate. So this meant when when she died, he was gonna come into control of over a billion dollars in liquid assets. Six months after the will was revised, Doris suffered a series of strokes and died. Lafferty didn't keep Hefner totally away from the estate. She was awarded $65 million in a settlement, which barely dented its $1.2 billion value. Soon after Doris's death, a 27-year-old nurse stepped forward and said that Doris's death wasn't as natural as it seemed. She accused Lafferty and one of Doris's doctors of hastening the demise with fatal doses of morphine and Demerol. The supposed motive was, of course, money. Once Doris died, Lafferty was poised to make bank. The newspapers loved this accusation. They could literally write the butler did it as the headline. Though Doris left much of her $1.2 billion to various charities and trusts, Lafferty got a flat sum of $5 million 
plus another half a million dollars a year for life. The Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office conducted a criminal investigation in 1996, but couldn't get far because Doris had been cremated two days after her death. There was no way to conduct an autopsy to check out the murder claims. What they could investigate offered no evidence of criminal homicide, so Lafferty kept his millions. But man, maybe Eduardo had cursed that dough because Lafferty only lived three years after Doris's death. Sleeping in his $2.5 million mansion in Bel Air, he died in his sleep of a heart attack. To research this story, I read the relevant chapters of Peter Lance's Homicide at Rough Point. I wish him well with this podcast. I also read contemporary newspapers and watched a bunch of documentaries and old newsreels about the Duke family. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at centuriespod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, there are almost 40 more episodes for you to binge right this second. You can find and follow Crimes of the Centuries wherever you listen to podcasts. 